This is the Dave and Shecky Show. We got this groovy podcast for ya. Reviewing crazy tunes or quoting Twain and Sting and Doom. We'll bring ideas to share like bonus points for extra flair. Cause it's the freaking Dave and Shecky Show. Show. We're bringing you this groovy review. We might preview movies, bake some bread, or drink some smoothies. So come on, have way too much caffeine. You roll up some rivers, I'll reference some Raffi. This is the Dave and Shecky Show. Veteran of the Coffee House, early folk rock, sing for your supper and sleep where you can living. Traveler of unexplored and hostile areas, peopled with long hair hating, finger pointing audiences that wouldn't even listen. Learning his craft on battered, broken guitars and antique amplifiers, and writing songs about joy even when a tear outweighed a smile. Standing out in the music world, overflowing with look alike sound alikes, like a peacock at a pigeon party. A one of a kind singer, songwriter, musician, and human type being that feels the notes he sings. Uh, who is he? Who is Buzzy? Hmm. Good question. Good question. I'd say he was, he was a very talented um, figure from the 70s. Uh, Buzzy's a writer, performer, um, clown. Very funny on stage, had a magnetic personality. Buzzy was, without a doubt, the greatest rock showman on a stage anywhere in the world. The joy that came out of him when he was singing was absolutely remarkable. He was, he was a one-of-a-kind, really a one-of-a-kind. Everybody knew Buzzy. Everybody knew who he was, and he was a very, very dynamic performer. He's uh, an amazing guy. He could sing like everybody. He, 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 when I first met him, he used to sing like Ray Charles, and I would just be in awe, you know. And he started playing the vibraphones, and he'd play the drums, he'd play the guitar. He was the New York musician. He got in every place that you could possibly get in. Everyone knew him. He knew everybody on the streets. You couldn't walk around with Buzzy without him saying hi to somebody he knew or somebody recognized him. It's amazing that more people don't remember Buzzy because he was, for a guy who didn't have a hit record, he was so big at the time. He could fill any auditorium in the New York area. And I burned my fingers on a coffee pot the toast was cold and on Jesus' high. Then I think I should start over, but you know I'd rather not. The same thing will happen again. Yeah, that's the bad guy. Yeah. Last night as I was walking down the street, whistling the blues through the tavern on my feet. You know, some old crazy winner called the top up on the beat. Got busted, happens every single time. Every morning when I wake up, come on. I was raised in Cleveland, Ohio, born in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but 
raised in the land of Cleves. I had a band and we played since I was 10. I've had a band. I've been a band leader and music and writing's been my life and uh, uh, my parents encouraged it but didn't realize I was gonna really do it or something. It's, it's strange that I was on a kid's radio show when I was tiny. I think when I was four or five, mom would take us downtown and we'd be on the radio. I was one of the charming children and they would <laughs> do children's sunshine sign, uh, you know, the sunshine, the sunshine. We were singing early. We were always in plays. Everybody in my family was an angel or the baby Jesus before they were two years old and uh, I just expected to grow right up into that kind of lifestyle and when they realized that that was my intention to actually try to make money doing it or hang out with the type of people who might do that for a living my parents were horrified because these are the very bad low moral type people that you'll meet in the big city uh, how they knew, I'm not sure. <laughs> but somehow I got there and found them. and I think we should be just knocked out when we watch people sing. It should be the best talent we can find, not say, uh, oh, that sounds like my 14-year-old niece. She can do that. I want to hear somebody really play music or somebody really sing or somebody really, really act. And it's it should be so good that you're not wondering whether it's good or not. You're just deciding whether you want to hear any more of it or not. And if you knew what I knew, then you would not be afraid of me. If I knew what you knew, then I could not be your enemy, but cheat, cheat, Buzzy at his best could go out and play for two three hours and when finally it was time for another act or something to come on uh, he would he'd still be up so that we'd end up going home and jamming he, he loved to play music always when his mood is right and he's got the crowd out there and they're locked in they're giving him what he needs you can't stop him you better be ready to be there for three days because he won't stop on and on and deeper and deeper you know as long as he can breathe he'll just be belting and he's amazing he's a machine he just he was just like one of these high energy guys you know he was he was just kind of all over the place and he was a big head of curly hair and and an excellent musician i mean i remember him playing guitar and then i remember him playing vibes and uh you know he was just all over the stage he would uh play his guitar Wildly, he would sing scat for 20 minutes, play a vibe solo for 20 minutes, 
uh, morph one song into another song. So by the time he finished a single drum beat, he'd have done 10 songs to that one drum beat. There was nothing like Buzzy. When we were performing live, it was great. It really was. That's what I remember about the band. The recording sessions are, recording is tedious by comparison. You know, I remember, you know, I mean, some of the best nights we ever had were just like showing up at some college at the very last minute because we couldn't find it and we were wandering around and, you know, somebody, you know, with some roadie driving the van around and around and we'd finally get there and run in at the last minute and set up like crazy and just play and it would be great, you know, because uh, you're already adrenalized and there's no sitting around getting bored and no, no tedious sound check. You just run in and, you know, Go for it. We had some great gigs. I was headed out your door, determined that I would go when a tornado warning came on a music show. I was scared of the howling wind blowing around the town, so I quickly changed my plans and I set all down. Uh, yeah, but it was no tornado at all. You know, I felt so I think you know Buzzy's voice was very unique, and 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 his his take on things were definitely odd and strange, but in a very cool sort of way. It, it's hard to describe Buzzy's style in just one or two words, or even uh, twenty-five for that matter. Musically, Buzzy falls into uh, the broad genre of American music. It's sort of a bluesy, jazzy, folk. Uh, and often experimental blend. It's difficult to describe Buzzy's music because it's um, it's got a lot of original elements in it, and he uh, blends a lot of things from a lot of different styles together in a very homogenous way. He makes it his own. You know, it's like a kind of folk blues approach with a slight element of rock and roll in it. Um, but it's indescribable, really. It's uh, Buzzy. Talk about a morning when I awoke the sun did shine. The sun did shine. Talk about things happening without any warning. I turned around to see all my. Mom and Dad said I couldn't stay at home anymore, and I didn't seem to be able to hold a regular type of job. <laughs> and all I really knew how to do was music and write songs and lead bands and arrange stuff. So I went into the U.S. Navy to play in the uh, in the U.S. Navy jazz band and dance band and marching band and symphony orchestra. And during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we went into wartime condition. Uh, we were right by the, the White House, and uh, uh, I was a guard at the guard station, you know, the guy who lets you in, and uh, uh, not qualified to be that. I don't know how I got the job. I shouldn't have been carrying a gun. At any rate, there was a, there was a fire on the base one day, 
and someone said, hey, you go in here, they need help. And uh, I fought a, 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 I was part of a team who fought a fire and there weren't, wasn't enough protective gear for everybody. So my lungs got kind of ruined in 1962 fighting a fire for the Navy. And uh, I'm supposed to be have uh, uh, medals and stuff like that, you know. But instead I got emphysema and... Uh, uh, Talk about the guy that got murdered. Oh, well, there was three of us guarding this part of the perimeter of, of the Navy base and uh, as far as like where those flowers are in the morning after uh, the sun came up after my watch. They found an army guy with his throat cut ear to ear. So uh, I I was scared to go out the next night, and I had to go out every night or every other night for a matter of a few months, and uh, and had some sort of a breakdown out there, just uh, feeling uh, that I was in danger and knew that I wasn't qualified. So uh, between the lung damage and uh, starting to see little bunny rabbits that weren't there on my watch, uh, actually, I don't think I was. Uh, when they let me out of the Navy, they said it was because I wasn't I wasn't armed forces material. So uh, I actually shouldn't have been in there in the first place. I'm uh, uh, I'm one of those peaceniks who gets the shit kicked out of them in the alley. I'm, uh, I'm against it uh, all. I think we can uh, reason it through. Could be wrong. I'm crazy as a loon, but uh, I opt for not killing right now. Uh, forever. A pussy cat can go far. She enjoys the sound of laughter. Shining bright like a star. Star, star. Happy noises, what we after life can be perfect when you know who you are. A pussy cat can go far. After the Navy, I went. I went down to Florida and uh, jumped right into the middle of the red-hot folk rock scene that was starting to emerge, even though it wasn't being called that at this point yet. And uh, saw David Crosby and uh, folks like that. Uh, David was 19 when I was 19 and uh, uh, met the great Fred Neal, who's one of the, the real heroes of the music scene. He was just great, and he told me if I'd meet him in New York City in the middle of the next uh, year that he'd be going up there, and he wasn't sure when. Fred was mysterious like that, so as soon as I could, I, went, I stopped back in Cleveland and said hello to my parents. I'd just gotten out of the Navy, and I zoomed over to New York uh, and wound up being a roommate with John Sebastian. Remember that great story he told at the, at the benefit? I'm lying in my bed. It's maybe 1963 and a half, four, somewhere in there. A uh, 
a knock comes on the door. I'm terrified because my room looks like it, it, it looks like a, a mist from Ireland is, is, is hovering at about the three-foot mark in this room. Guy opens, I open the door. You have to know that Buzzy at that moment was fresh out of the Navy. I open the door, I go, it's a narc. But as soon as he starts talking, I realize... No, he's not a narc. He's a player. He says, Felix Papillardi sent me over here because he felt that you were at your girlfriend's house. And when the Love and Spoonful was number one in the world with You Believe in Magic, and Barry Gordy and Diana Ross came to see them perform at the Night Owl Cafe, the Love and Spoonful was opening for Fred Neal with the Buzz Linhart trio <laughs> and uh, boy we were right in the middle of, of the birth of folk rock and uh, Fred used to like to do uh, uh, meandering wandering searching jam sessions uh, and uh, I, I was throwing in the Indian influence from hearing Ravi Shankar when I, in 1959 I had started doing raga type music at that point and we could just, if everybody would listen to each other and share the arrangement, we could go for a half hour playing things that nobody had ever thought or heard before. Uh, uh, was what we were calling psychedelic at that time. And it wasn't, it wasn't tripping out, man. It was like trying to communicate and, uh, and find out where telepathy ends and where sharing music begins man oh man it was the hottest music there was so after Freddie we formed the Seven Sons, and that was myself and Serge and Buzz. And then we got Max Oaks, who came in and played, I don't know, did Max play rhythm? Could be. Uh, so we had Max Oaks, so we had a foursome. And the main thing we did was the, was Raga Rock. That I think that was before George Harrison or anybody got into that. So we were the nouveau deal, you know. Well, in actuality, we were sending tapes to the Beatles through their press agent. So what they actually received and didn't receive, we don't know. It just seemed like we were connected anyhow. And we were definitely doing the Indian Raga thing before it appeared in, on their records. I can remember one time in Cleveland we toured that we played so well and we had the audience so wrapped and in the palm of our hands that I, st I started crying. I mean it was just, God what an experience this was, you know. That was, that was top of the world. That was really top of the world. And we were hot. I mean, they, all these record companies were coming and saying, oh we want you, we want you, we want you, but the problem was 
they wanted to use a different drummer on the recording and Serge wouldn't go for it. So we turned down Capital. We had uh, we turned down. We did we did a really really good one for it. Uh, Electra, Elect Paul Rothschild had us in, and the problem with them signing us at that time was the same thing. It was like we'll put in a drummer. We won't name who the drummer is. As far as anybody is concerned, Serge, it's you. Wouldn't go for it. And we never know to this day whether he'd ever played drums ever before in his life. Serge was a totally insane guy, but he had a loft, and he'd have all-night jam sessions, and he'd have like you know, heavy hitters. You'd have Muddy Waters come down, or Little Walter, like the Chicago blues people. You'd have, I brought down James Taylor and Danny Cooch one night to his jams. He, you know, I mean, the Birds, Jimi Hendrix, anybody could show up at Surges. People were in and out of the place. A lot of, uh, of the villages happening musicians at the time, the Love and Spoonful people, the Blues Magoos people, the the early uh, the Jimi Hendrix was starting to do his thing just before going to England and, and, and becoming, you know, what he became. And and the Claptons and, and people were in and out of that loft. It was just an amazing place. It was also a place to, uh, like a candy store, can we just say, sort of? He had every thing known to man to alter your consciousness and uh, it, 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 was, it was wide open. I mean, there was, you know, there was food there, there was beer there, there was booze there, there was dope there, there was everything there. And it was a place, and, and suddenly it became kind of the end place to go. If, if Serge could have made a million if he had started an after-hour club, you know what I mean? It was an interesting, definitely an interesting place. But the, I think the most, uh, I mean, aside from the music, which had its highs, the, uh, the time that the police came in up the elevator and through the windows and on ropes and busted in on the place and uh, busted everybody, took us all down to jail. And that was the, I think the thing that's, if I think about that experience, what sticks out most in my mind. It was a crazy place. I'm not saying it was the greatest, but it was a, the place to be for a while. Church was like, yeah, he was a pretty scary character and kind of a turnoff, you know, like as many drugs as he would feed you. It, it didn't make him look any better. He <laughs> reminded me a lot of Charles Manson because he kind of had some kind of southern midwestern drawl and he was really gaunt and he had a beard and he had a rap like, man, you gotta do it like this or kind of like Dennis Hopper in Easy Rider or something, you know. Serge Katzen was pretty scary and he would get you high on all kinds of drugs that he'd have and then he'd lecture you about life and I think he wanted to become a cult figure, but I think Buzzy was the only one he could get to join his cult. Serge had him pretty well controlled for a long time, for a real long time. Oh, it was terrible. He had us all on speed and cocaine. And uh, very fearful, you know, once I realized that somebody was controlling my life, uh, that's, that's very scary to realize that, uh, it, it, to realize that some people 
would do that to you. And it's made me uh, kind of a nervous wreck if, if I wasn't before. Actually, my uh, um, soon-to-be second wife and I had to leave in the middle of the night after Serge had fallen asleep. He, he actually held me at gunpoint for 48 hours and uh, finally fell asleep and we grabbed this little, you know, I grabbed two things and she grabbed two things and we left. And uh, it was very scary. I don't know how many of you have been held at gunpoint, but it makes you think certainly. So, unfortunately, that's the way the, uh, the group broke up. Uh, too much speed and Serge thought that I was, you know, doing things behind his back or whatever. He just uh, turned into a lunatic there. I just was afraid he would always show up someday when I had my big hit. And of course, he's passed away now, so I don't have to worry. And it's, uh, it was a terrible thing. I, I hate to say that I was so relieved on the day that he died, but uh, he kind of started it and uh, kind of molested my mind. I was a very trusting 19-year-old, uh, all ready to really, uh, to really trust anybody. I picked the wrong boy. amazing um, music scene in New York from, well there was always an amazing music, it's a, it's, it's a music city, it's the hub, it's the, the place where a lot of music is born. Everybody was just starting, it was just beginning, it was like being, I guess it was like being in Paris in the 20s because the music scene was really starting to blossom. Yeah, it was really good. I mean, I started out, I wanted to follow out the, the Blues Project and Eric Anderson and David Blue. I would jam with these guys and play with them. And Cream came over and they'd have jam sessions. So I'd be jamming with Clapton. And sometimes Jimi Hendrix would go out every night and jam, you know. Uh, he, Frank Zappa had his own theater there where they did the Mothers of Invention year-round, every night in their own theater. So he would jam with us sometimes, you know. There was just clubs everywhere, and music was a, a continually evolving thing with musicians from all over the world just being drawn to New York. People were going electric, you know, Bobby Dylan was doing that thing, and Butterfield's band was coming to town, and man, things were changing, Jimmy and the Cream, and... Uh, Explosive. In the same night, we would go see The Doors and The Loving Spoonful and The Rascals playing in clubs, house bands. We'd catch one set of each of them. All these folks were, they were all around at the same time, you know, just, you know, those were like the formative years for them. And it was great to be able to see so many of them. It was an amazing scene. I mean, that's, that's totally gone. I mean, we'll never see the likes of that again, where so many names were... You know, and guys who became names were gigging. The music was great. You know, I remember seeing Love and Spoonful a lot in the old days before they were really big. 
and Sebastian and those guys were, were incredible. Zolianovsky and Butler and the drums, those guys. When I heard them, the harmonies and the stuff they did, and James Taylor was around, and Buzzy and Tim Harden. Well, the first time I saw Buzzy was um, at the Night Owl, playing Vibes with Tim Harden. Vibes, uh, I had never seen a band, um, you know, a rock band. That was a place the Spoonful played, and Richie Havens played, and it was either folk music or... Um, I'd never seen Vibes with a, um, an artist, and they, I mean, they really suited Tim Harden to a T. And um, Buzzy looked like he was having a lot of fun. It was a beautiful sound. And the next time I saw him was um, the Cafe Agogo. And the Youngbloods and the Blues Project were both playing at the Cafe Agogo, and we, we were fighting over rehearsal time. You know, we, uh, the reason we were both playing there was because we could rehearse during the day, but we had to alternate days. So, And I think I wandered in there a Sunday afternoon uh, one day thinking that it might be empty and we could rehearse. And uh, it wasn't. They were doing an afternoon music. And there was Buzz on stage. And I mean, he sang this song that just uh, took my mind away, and it was Get Together. Stage, which I don't often do, and introduced myself and asked him to teach it to me. And um, he said, uh, I said, where did you write that? And he said, no, this was written by a fellow named Dino Valenti, who, who used to be here in the village and has left for the West Coast. So he wrote out the lyrics for me and showed me the chords. He taught me the song, and uh, I did swallow it whole. This the spirit of the song and the way Buzzy sang it went right through me and uh, changed my life, really. And I've started singing it, you know, probably three days after I learned it from Buzzy, and I haven't stopped since, and that's been 40 years. Come on, people now. Get together now to smile on your brother, try to love one another right now. You can't underestimate Buzzy Linhart's influence on the entire scene. One time I was playing with Buzzy at the Gaslight in like 1970 and Bob Dylan walked in and caught the whole show, sat in the front row, stayed, caught the whole show and then left, you know. Like, he influenced, you can hear it in Sebastian, a lot of that good time shuffle feel, a lot of it comes from Buzzy. Buzzy has some of Sebastian's influence, but yeah, they were, very similar, like a lot, you know, just it was a cross-pollinization thing. He had amazing groupies, Carly Simon, Bette Midler, Phoebe Snow, I mean all these people were just like thought, I mean I remember Bette's exact words, where he sings like a bird, you know, she was so impressed with Buzzy. Buzzy was a big star and I was just a struggling piano player, songwriter, trying to get something going. You know, he took me under his wing. And he showed me what it was like to be a rock star, you know. Yeah, Mark Moogie Klingman uh, and Buzzy go way back. They, of course, co-wrote Friends together and uh, have had a real creative interaction over, boy, um, 34, 35 years. The song is ded dedicated to Bette Midler, who brought us 
many happy hours of listening pleasure and residuals. Moogie and I had walked through Washington Square Park to see if we could find any girls. And then we went back to his house and he, uh, he said, we should write a song sometime. And I said, that's great. And he said, I, I said, you got any ideas? He said, yeah. I said, what, what idea you got? I had this chorus I've been working on called Standing at the End of the Road. And I'm standing at the end of the road. Standing at the end of the road was, it was actually a title of a Fats Waller song that I had just seen on a record cover. And I thought it was a great title. It reminded me of Charlie Chaplin walking in the woods or something, you know, a homeless vagrant standing at the end of the road, like what's at the end of the road. So I said, great, sounds great. How's it go? And he sits down and he goes, standing at the end of the road. But you don't care if I'm hungry. And I stopped and then he played his guitar. But you gotta have friends, my friend. Feelings oh so strong. You got to have friends to make that day last long. I had some friends, but they're gone. Right on. Something came or took them away. And from the dusk to the dawn, here is where I stay. Standing at the end of the road, boys, waiting for my new friends to come. I don't care if I'm hungry or cold. I'm gonna get me some. So it was a song we both wrote music and lyrics on. Basically, I wrote the verse and he wrote the chorus, but we. We helped each other out on, on the whole thing, you know, because uh, we both do it, we both play, and we both write words. So we wrote it, and just just a couple of weeks later, uh, Bette Midler and I met, and it was the first song I ever sang her. Maybe 10 days later that she asked if she could perform Friends at the Continental Baths on uh, a midnight show, a midnight Saturday night show, which Boogie and I, my co-author and I, went to see. Her version of Friends is what's really uh, built my career as a songwriter. I owe the buzz for that one, getting it to Bet, and then Bet turning it into her theme song, you know? That was great. Around, you know, you 
because it was just had such an energy live that uh, and that came across. I mean, all the gigs I did with Buzzy and we played, you know, a lot of colleges, and just people went crazy. I mean, he just always sold himself. And we did a couple of gigs where we opened for Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And I remember, and the audience loved Buzzy more than they did Blood, Sweat, and Tears. He just had so much momentum, so much heat on him. He was just, you know, he'd, you'd have lines around the block. If Buzzy Linhart was gonna play at a club, lines around the block, you know, all day long, whatever. Like, he, he, he could do, you know, like, uh, play four or five nights at big clubs and just have endless crowds. A lot of people knew about Buzzy. Uh, and, uh, I mean, from, you know, 18-year-old college girls to, you know, really great musicians in New York, everybody thought Buzzy was going to be the next big thing. Um, I remember Mike Maneri, who I still consider possibly the world's greatest jazz vibes player, um, said to me at the time that, you know, Buzzy was obviously star material and, and um, it was like Richie Havens only with a lot more depth, you know, I mean, you know, really incredibly complimentary. This is a song called There It Goes Again, also from the new album, and uh, ded dedicated to the proposition that uh, the universe keeps changing every second, therefore uh, the religions that we find necessary uh, to have today to keep ourselves running until we go to bed tonight may change tomorrow. And uh, it's just, the uh, universe is kind of like riding a subway. I don't know how many of you uh, long hairs ever asked some of the people behind the cages at the subway for instructions, but sometimes they play a little game and tell you the opposite way for the hell of it. And uh, one day I was riding, uh, my chick had left me, and I was riding uh, the fifth, fifth uh, time in a row, uh, fifth train in the wrong direction, and it broke down between tunnels, and I figured it was, if that wasn't time for a song, there would never be one, and uh, this is the song, it's called There It Goes Again. A lot of people, uh, to think sometimes that this is a depressing song. I think if you, when you hear it, and if it sounds depressing, that you should maybe consider the fact that uh, you're listening to it negatively. Because ain't nothing depressing, you know. As soon as anything's that bad, you might as well just rejoice and be happy you still got your hands and feet. What's your favorite Buzzy Linhart song? Ah! <laughs> I do like, uh, There It Goes Again. Which you can buy in your, no, which you can't buy anywhere. And there it goes again. Everything you ever done goes down the drain and turns into a subway train to Harlem. There it goes, right down to Harlem. And ever why it went. you really no one knows never oh you have no reason to go on with now and then your failure always makes you blind enough to try again 
So there he goes. A man in something you once wore. After is a place at which you used to dwell before. Remember? And there it goes again. Gone forevermore. Yesterday's religion. Walking out tomorrow's dawn. Why is that your favorite one? Because um, I thought it kind of paid homage to uh, how Dylan changed everything. I hoped it did, you know. In America, for a long time, we kept that social consciousness in the lyrics that uh, Bob Dylan fathered for us. Um, I think we should listen to Dylan every day. People should remember why he was so great. Everything he's done is, is wonderfully talented, of course, but I think it's important to listen to songs like Masters of War and The Times They Are Changing and uh, anything from the first five Beatle albums, or uh, Dylan albums. But what if, what if Dylan had penned the Beatles hits, huh? What about that? We'd have stuff like, she loves you, yeah, 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 she loves you. You know what I mean? Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. It wouldn't be the same, right? She loves you, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, there ain't no question that you'll find the reason why. The secret is so simple, you just have to or you die. And realizing that success is no success at all. Brings to mind that winning makes it easier to fall. And a vision of a day when I'll be you. See where I'm going. So here it goes. An SOS from ship to shore. Please help me. Sending signals to yourself is suddenly a bore. There, there it goes again. Gone forevermore. Yesterday's religion Walking out tomorrow's dawn Can't help it. Yesterday's religion Walking out tomorrow's dawn Thank you. Thank you, thank you. He could write these songs that were really like really sad, and and then he'd turn around and he'd be clowning with you. You know, that was uh, that was Buzzy at his best. You know, there there was almost like there's you have the side of him which is the musician, who's the really cool. 
guy know, knew what to play, he was very subtle and very cool with the vibes and all the rest of it. And then there was the other side, this lunatic guy who was just completely out of control. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's my first memory, it was this out of control nutcase. Yeah, he could be a clown, you know, riding the subway down from the Bronx to go to rehearsals down at Surges at 10 in the morning. He, he would have a subway car cracking up people. He would just be a clown. He'd just, he'd imitate things and, 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 and weird people, you know. He, he yeah, he was just too much. I mean, yeah, he, gosh, I miss him. He was a very funny guy. Um, and he had all these funny little voices that he would do. But he was always performing. You know, he was always like doing a goofy voice that little kid voice or or making a face or, or jumping around or just being crazy all the time. Uh, he always had this thing with voices. That little boy, you little boy. He'd, he'd do that little crazy voice. He still does it. I've talked to him on the phone. He has that little funny voice. I can't even do it. I don't do any little voices. I never, never did and I never, never do them again. I think he used them when he sang too. He had... It was kind of his version of a falsetto voice. <laughs> we have a couple of requests. There it goes again. Okay. I was say I have a request, but I'm going to keep on singing anyway. I always wanted to make cartoon voices and radio voices. When I was little, littlest, there was no TV. So you really, you traveled listening to these uh, um, theaters on radio and uh, Sky King. I mean, you flew through the air with Sky King and, and, and all those people and the Lone Ranger. So I, I always wanted to be a DJ and do a radio thing. And if you get close to the mic, you can get your voice real low. in the key of the dog. Understand that I appear between uh, um, Jack Lemon and Rob Lowe under Naked Men on film, and they just showed their butts. Channel One, the Groove Tube, was uh, was an inline TV show at a private adult club that you could take your friends to uh, and blow their minds with this uh, silly humor. 
and uh, and I saw Channel One maybe the first time in 1968 or nine, and here was Chevy Chase and uh, and Lane Saracen and Ken Shapiro doing all these incredible uh, anti-establishment uh, just incredibles of false starts of TV shows and you'd go along and then all of a sudden somebody's taking a bra off or somebody used the F word or whatever it is that lets you know that this is going to be different than regular TV. Uh, the, the role of the hitchhiker had already been outlined uh, for us by Richard Belzer in the original black and white version and uh, uh, when Ken Shapiro asked me to uh, do the first frontal male nudity in the history of American cinema. I thought that that'd be a great idea. I'd been running a couple miles a day for uh, a couple years or something. So uh, I liked doing it. It was fun. Talk about the justice game. You would just think that uh, it I could be more famous from that. When I first found out about Buzzy Linhart and I found out he was the guy in the opening scene of that movie, I was like, wow, oh, you know, but uh, my association with him has more to do with art and comics than with music. I used to work at Walker Art Center in Minneapolis as a museum guard, and a lot of my friends that were also museum guards there lived in this ratty old apartment building, and uh, one of my friends uh, introduced me to him. And, uh, so we immediately hit it off talking about comic books and art more than anything and I gradually came to realize who he was but at first it was all about comics. He was like, uh, you know, you ought to do a comic about me. You know, he was kind of like, uh, I'd already had one thing published so I was a brand new, wide-eyed, young, enthusiastic cartoonist and I guess with Buzzy, he liked my comics and uh, he saw an opportunity. He just had all these different stories to tell, and I was like, well, what should we do? And uh, so uh, uh, he invited me to his apartment, and he had all these boxes everywhere, like he probably still does, and he pulled out some stuff, and he pulled out an old interview. Well, he actually gave me a box and said, dig through this box and pick out something in here that might be something you might want to illustrate into a story. I started to work on it, and then Buzzy like mysteriously disappeared out of Minneapolis and it's like you know I was pretty good friends with them but not like enough to where I saw him every day or anything and just like all of a sudden you know he wasn't around. I went ahead and I finished the story and finally an opportunity came up in this magazine called Subliminal Tattoos and it was like I think it was eight years after I drew it that it finally got published and then uh, I, I was hoping Buzzy wouldn't mind and I was also thinking, like, gosh, I hope Buzzy can see this. And uh, so in the introduction, I, uh, I, in the magazine, I, I, I uh, wrote an introduction before the comic and said, you know, I don't know what happened to Buzzy Linhart. He disappeared. He was a friend of mine. We were working on this project together, and he disappeared, and I went ahead and finished it. And now it's like eight, nine years later, and it's finally in print. I have no idea where he is. So if you know where Buzzy is... Give him a copy of this magazine. Then like a couple of years later, I got a phone call from him and kind of got back in touch again and everything. And um, he was real happy about it. So this whole package is like, at this point, 10, 13 years old? Yeah, I guess from 89. Yeah, 89 was when I finished it. It's like my second comic strip I've ever done. 
and I probably wouldn't have done it without Buzzy breaking me down and telling me to not be doing my stupid freelance jobs and do something of artistic merit his life. <laughs> The stage persona that uh, you know he told me straight out was designed to um, you know make 14 year old girls fall in love with him because you know because that's the market you know and he and it was childish in a way but when you were seeing him do it it was so charming <clears throat> and he was so obviously brilliant you know that uh, it went over. He was meant to be a solo artist. Buzzy like he'd just take over a stage you know. And he had a fanatical following. And when he would do a show, you would really have to say that he was the Bruce Springsteen of the early 70s. He, he kind of like uh, morphed, the thing morphed into Bruce Springsteen and he kind of took over from Buzzy as being this unbelievable performer who would do long shows. That was what Buzzy Linhart did and he did it better than anyone else, you know. I said, when you were down, Nobody would talk to you But didn't you call me up And tell me you did feel blue But now that the past is split You really seem to speak my name This is really all the things I get For helping in the search for fame Well, I can hardly wait to make it to the top So I can laugh at you I can hardly wait to make it to the top so I can laugh. Said you're famous. You ought to know by now. Just an image, but you missed the boat somehow. I said you're famous, and it's time I learned to care. But the famous, and I missed a point somewhere before you think that being selfish is a thing to do. <laughs> make sure you understand that everything is doing coming back at you. Describe Buzzy at his absolute best. On stage. You know, that's when he was at his best. That was what everything was oriented to. And that was when he could put into practice, uh, you know, his, you know, what I considered pretty jive philosophy, you know, which is that I love everybody and I love everybody the same, you know, meaning no one has any holds on me, you know. And, you know, Okay, it's the same philosophy that a Buddhist monk is supposed to adhere to, but you know, a Buddhist monk also isn't like trying to be a rock and roll star. You know, it's like a different category. But on stage, that's what works. You know, you've got all those people out there, and you love every one of them, and it's kind of heartbreaking because he. When he was doing it, he was so sincere. And, you know, in the end it didn't work out. Talent is great. There's a lot of talented people out there. 
who are starving, and he's an a very credible example of of one of those wonderful geniuses who are just misunderstood and um, just not given the right breaks or whatever. The whole trick about surviving in this business is to be able to be adaptable and diversify and and get a hold of your career and just drive it forward. You have to have a vision about that, and you can't let things get in the way. Now, some artists just can't do that. They can't get out of their own way. A lot of self-destructive streaks out there, where you can go from to, to Phil Oaks, you know, Buzzy, you know, succumb to some of that, just doing stuff to uh, to stop his career. He was so successful at circumventing his success after 1973, 74, 75, by just pretty much dropping out of everything, or you know, having real problems when he would play that people actually forgot about him. You know, they forgot who he was. They forgot what his influence was. Like, if he would have just been playing around every year or so and growing occasionally, then they'd still remember. But, you know, it, it, he disappeared so completely that he was wiped from people's minds. Yes, I can hardly wait to make it to the top so I can laugh at you. Yes, I can hardly wait to make it to the top so I can laugh. They're famous. Ought to know by now it's just an image. Budger missed the boat somehow. Say the famous. And it's time to learn to care. But the famous. And I missed the point somewhere before you think to be a selfish is a thing to do. You soon find out that everything I ever did is coming back so famous. You ought to know by now, just the image. Budget is the boat somehow. You got your money, but you don't know what it's for. Got what you need now, but all you want is more and more. If you think that being selfish is the thing to do. You soon find out that everything I ever did is coming back at you. There are definitely situations where Buzzy has made choices in terms of who would manage him or which show or deal to take where he didn't exercise the best of judgment. And then, of course, once in the job, the deal, perhaps um, uh, mismanaging his own responsibilities and relationship with the people involved may have uh, put some people off. There are a million stories about, a million stories about Buzzy. We are playing at a, oh God, just thinking about this makes me cringe. Uh, we were playing a thing for peace at Carnegie Hall, and the, the, they had to be, they had every, Pete Seeger, every folk singer in the world. We were the only group, and this was right after like a Rolling Stone came up, we were the only group that rolled out amplifiers. And when we rolled out the amplifiers, the entire house of Carnegie Hall, which was the biggest place I'd ever played in my life, was going and just screaming at us. Now, the bad part was that five minutes before we went on, Buzzy decided that his strings were not right. So he changed all of his strings. When you put on new strings, they go out and they go everywhere. And he's tuning right up 
to where they wheel out the amplifiers, everybody's going boo, I'm standing in the back, and I'm wondering how far I can step back and just be in the shadows, because every, I've never seen this. It's like a whole house going Sss. And we're gonna play Let's Get Together by, right, by Dino Valenti or Chester Powers. And he says to the audience, Shh. And the audience is going, Shh, what the hell? Ding, 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 ding. And then we went into Let's Get Together. He was out of tune. Uh, we got polite applause. But my whole life I've been able to say, hey, I played at Carnegie Hall. It's true, you never knew how Buzzy would react to a certain situation. And he could come down very hard on an audience. Uh, if they were not paying attention to him. I remember one gig at Max's Kansas City in New York where the place was packed and there were some people talking and Buzzy started playing quieter and quieter and quieter until he, you know, we just, you know, we stopped. And these people were still going on loudly carrying on the conversation and Buzzy said, look, what'd you pay to get in here? Ten bucks? I'll give you twenty to leave. He came to one of our gigs in London. He said, I'm coming to, I'll come to, one, come to one of your gigs tonight. I think it was in Blazers or something one of the smoky old nightclubs in London that we used to play. And um, we were looking out into the audience to see Buzzy while we were playing. And, you know, between them, I said, I can't, I can't see Buzzy out there. I wonder where he is. And then we saw Buzzy coming in at the back of the room, holding his mouth very tightly closed like that. He stood there for five minutes until he went completely red in the face. Then he'd disappear for 30 seconds, obviously to expel the kind of air from his lungs, take a new lung full of fresh air outside, and he'd come back in and stand there again. So, and he did that throughout the, the first 45-minute spot, which was distracted us incredibly. I mean, we found it incredibly funny, but it got on our nerves towards the end. And that's a typical thing of Buzzy. He could do something that would be incredibly funny, very, you know, uh, uh, I mean, Buzzy really didn't know where to stop. You know, I think he fired me off the bandstand is what happened. He's crashing in my house. We're recording an album at my studio. We're on stage playing and he gets really upset with me and he fires me on the bandstand. Like, I'm producing and financing his record. I'm giving him a place to live. I'm playing in this band for practically nothing, and he fires me in the middle of a song, you know. Not very nice, you know. I mean, there's so many interesting things about Buzzy. He had given up his heroin addiction, and he had gotten slim, and now he was addicted to running every day and women, you know. And I'm not kidding when I say he literally needed to have a different a new woman every day. Um, not just a woman, and not just a woman besides his wife, but a new one. And he was real good at it. <laughs> you know, he was pretty successful in, in that hobby. Um, Would you just pick women up off the street? If there were women around, he would pick them up, you know. Sometimes he wasn't at all subtle. Sometimes he would just like take off his clothes with the dressing room door open and see if anybody would walk in. <laughs> I, I've been pretty nutty here for uh, 40 years. I understand now. 
And uh, if I can apologize to anybody, I, my judgment has been really off, I think, and uh, in lots of cases. Now, did you think I was crazy? So many of your songs have to do or have lines about being crazy. Apparently, I'm, I'm insane. I think I was projecting some of my problems and thinking that maybe a lot more people are going through this exactly like I am. Well, the first year I knew him, he was in a mental hospital, and I would speak to him from the mental hospital. He would call up at Serge's house. Serge is the one that really needed to be in the mental hospital. But Buzzy ended up there. The day I got out of the hospital, you know, was, and I don't mention that he's been in the hospital now. Nobody talk about that. It was wild. Did you put yourself in the hospital? Mm-hmm. How long were you in there? Well, it got tricky. They decided they would uh, uh, study me closer than I had hoped for. About a half a year it took me to get out. Buzzy is truly nuts, but he's nuts in such a charming way that there's never any, well, this guy is unhinged. There's never any of that kind of fear there. There is, he's funny, he's amusing. He's a very amusing guy. Which brings up the point, they told me this year I'm, what do they call it? Mentally ill? Yeah. So. If I seem strange, I'm harmless. I won't hurt the dog. The children will just think I'm funny, hopefully. I need that. And uh, so I'm certainly not knocking uh, insanity. What have you been diagnosed with uh, mentally? Have you talked to a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Uh, undifferentiated schizophrenia. And what is that exactly, to the best of your knowledge? Uh, When things get scary or seem like they're scary, I can't tell if something's wrong or not. And if my response gets triggered, that kind of fight or flight, wartime readiness thing gets triggered, uh, I could think we're about to get bombed or feel like it. It uh, kind of overloads my system. And uh, since I can't see too well, uh, it, it all feeds each other, you know? I get kind of scared. It's a bad day for Buzzy. A bad day is uh, when the fears and the frustration of his situation uh, fall down on him like a ton of bricks. And he is racked with pain and he is depressed and scared and volatile and uh, difficult. I think the problem is I haven't recorded or released this one song. It's called I Am So Small. And once I do that, then everybody will understand me. I am too small. I cannot see that life is all in all, in every way, the best that it can be. 
And if I die, when I die, if I die, I will appreciate the concept that when you're too small, there's always room to grow. Trees don't have to be heard to bark. Woof, woof. Life don't have to be hard. It's easy. It don't matter if skies are dark, my friend. I'm too small. I cannot see, 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 see. That life is all in all in every way. The best that it could be. And when I die, if I die, I will appreciate the concept that when you're too small, there's always room to grow. Well, why don't you give me a list of things you've been diagnosed with? Just run it down, because I know it's a long list. Uh, uh, frozen dislocated right shoulder, torn rotator cuff of frozen dislocated left shoulder. Uh, I guess massive damage to the intercostal cartilage of my right rib cage and uh, this last thing that happened when the yellow cab hit me and dragged me 20-30 yards uh, apparently it, it really kind of wrinkled the eighth rib and the one next to it there's kind of a big space you can put your fingers in uh, but it healed wrong because it took quite a while to get Medicaid to give an okay to work on it. Matter of fact, about 10 months in that case. Uh, the left broken finger, two and a half weeks. Couldn't get any permission from Medicaid to set the finger. So now my playing guitar is, career's definitely on hold. He uh, has the glaucoma, of course, continuing to worsen his uh, vision. His vision's never been very good. Um, he has uh, uh, bad knees and a botched knee surgery from a couple decades ago. Uh, so mobility is a big issue. Um, lately he's been having a little COPD and uh, even a few heart scares here and there. But, um, you know, he's a real survivor. His knees, uh, he had weeping edema, the swelling of the ankles, uh, the skin, skin can split and ooze and on the feet. That has come and gone. I've seen his feet really swell up. His knees, uh, you know, he's a bit rotund on top and has kind of like chicken legs that hold him up, you know, so you wonder, it's like he's going to fall over. He uh, kind of shuffles along. It's hard for him to walk, and, and all because people see him walking. I think he gets misinterpreted that if they, you see him without his wheelchair, this is a guy that doesn't need a wheelchair, but he in fact does need uh, the motorized wheelchair. A lot of the illness stuff is very complex. A lot of it could be mixed in with mental conditions and <coughs> stuff, and then it manifests itself in such a way that Buzzy's just, you know, physically incapacitated. Uh, from his head to his toe, he can find something in every part of his body, and then it does hurt him, and then it becomes something he can't walk, he can't move this, he can't move that. Yeah, I mean, everybody has to know, uh, if they know exactly what happened to Buzzy or they don't know, that the guy hasn't done well. You know? So, whether he's faking or he's not faking, he's still in the same position, right? He's really been suffering, and it's very problematic, and it's sad at the same time, you know, to, to watch 
uh, the pain that he's in and, and to struggle day to day uh, with money, health issues, health management issues. He's really buried in that, that world right now. I'm sorry to hear that Buzzy is in a wheelchair and, and he's not well and, and that maybe some of his bad choices and his waiting so long to, to get it together has, um, has caused him some misery. And, and um, you know, we lost a voice because of that. We lost Buzzy's voice, he's gone. You know, even Buzzy has told you he's not that person anymore, you know. Uh, but he really is. He really is. He can still get up on stage once a year and belt it out, you know, and come from the heart. And it's multi-generational language that he speaks. It, it, you know, it's, it's good. It's good stuff that comes from him. Even when he's sick, it's very good stuff. There's a hole in my life without me. Oh boy. <laughs> Anxious, anxiously happy, happily, anxiously happily awaiting the future again. Do you think it's too late for Buzzy? No, no, it's not too late. He just has to uh, get off his ass and get motivated and, and, uh, and we're all getting old and we're all getting tired and some of us have it worse than others but you can still do things I mean when you stop doing things you might as well just say goodbye you know hang up I mean do you know what I'm saying yeah it's not too late no it's never too late it's never too late never 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 as long as you have a breath in you you can change the world with your last breath. But couldn't you see all the truth in my eyes when I said I'd There's a hole in my life without you.
I just want to add that um, if anybody's out there watching this, guys like Robin Williams who knew him from the old days, guys like Bill Cosby who knew him from the old days, give him a call. Give Buzzy a call. He'd love to hear from you. And I really don't think that's, uh, you know, I mean, he, he's a member of the Screen Actors Guild. And uh, any, of, any of you guys are doing a show, this is a guy who, who would love to still work and he's able to, to work on a set. So uh, give him a call. All right. John Sebastian was a funny guy. He talked like this and what? No, that's not the, no. That's not the way. That's not true, so. you can You can print that because it's not true. No, and I wouldn't put it in. No, really. My dad and I just were both Bills, and I had to pick a name. I actually wrote Fuzzy on everything that I owned, and then nobody would go for it. And here I was, the football said Fuzzy, and all my books said Fuzzy, and my shoes said Fuzzy. And so I was able to change the F's to B's, honestly, and convince them that my new name was Buzzy. Buzzy.